Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp for the uh, New Books Network, the Native American uh, uh, History and Studies channel. Today on the podcast, we have Professor Lisa Brooks um, from Amherst College. She's an associate professor in English and American uh, Studies. We'll be discussing her new book from Yale University Press, uh, Our Beloved Kin, A New History of King Philip's War. Uh, Professor Brooks, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. So first off, uh, as we usually do on the podcast, uh, we're going to be discussing your, uh, this is, by the way, an entry in the Henry O'Cloud series on American Indians and modernity. We're going to be discussing the the cover of the book. Uh, Can you uh, tell us a little bit about both uh, the cover source as well as the alterations that were made to produce said cover? Sure. I would love to talk about the cover. Um, So, I love maps, um, and um, I was surprised when the press had asked for a map for the cover because there were all kinds of other things that I could have imagined. Um, and what they asked for is um, if there was a historical map that would show a lot of the native place names and locations that I talked about in the book. And I kind of laughed <laughs> because um, one of the reasons why um, we had to create so many Um, maps for the book was um, because there are so few historical maps that um, accurately portray native place names. Um, So often the maps that come from this period are really about claiming this space um, as colonial space, as New England. Um, So this was a map that I used that's actually from a later period. Um, It's by Thomas Jeffries, and it's called A New Map of Nova Scotia and Cape Britain with the Adjacent Parts of New England and Canada. And it's from 1755. It's from the Massachusetts Historical Society. Um, And what we wanted to highlight on this map was both um, the places that it did recognize. For example, um, the community of Missisquoi, which is the Abenaki community that my family's from, um, as well as other Abenaki communities on the map, um, but also the erasures on this map. So a lot of the cover shows the reinscription of native territories and places and riverways um, that is kind of characteristic of the kind of work that I want to do, but I think also characteristic of the work that a lot of tribal communities are now engaged in, in um, using um, indigenous language and indigenous knowledges to remap um, their territories and to remap the places as as um, as they've been handed down in our communities. Who participated in the uh, production of the cover? Thank you so much for asking that. Um, so this was kind of a quick process. Um, me and a group of students, as well as um, our GIS specialist, Andy Anderson, had been working for a long time on creating maps for the book manuscript and um, and for the website. And um, so when we decided to reinscribe this historical map, it was a former student of mine who now works as a postback at Amherst College. Her name is Lauren Tuscula. Um, she's an amazing digital humanities scholar. And 
we worked together to reinscribe the labels on this map. And we also worked with uh, Marissa Parham, who is also a professor in English at American Studies with me and a digital humanities scholar as well. And um, Marissa actually helped us to find the tools to be able to um, make it so that the writing actually represented um, what would look like my handwriting on this map. So not just taking font types and things like that, but actually doing the reinscription. So let's uh, dive into the book. Are you ready? Um, so so uh, in the introduction, you confess that what you did not know at the outset of, of this research process was how much new material would be revealed by focusing so closely on the lives of James, Wiedemu, and their families, and those who traveled north. How did your rhizomatic approach to King Philip's War in 1670s New England change during the process of research? Sure. Um, so I think that word um, rhizomatic that you used is so important because it's talking about um, a network of roots, right? A root system that lies beneath the ground. And I really feel like that describes a lot of my research process and the way that I was also trained um, by other Abenaki people who were community members, right? Who are tracing the history through kinship networks. And so that's really what I was doing here. I was I was really following um, the questions that were raised by the research, um, but the documents that I found would often come along because I was trying to understand something very in particular about James Printer and his network of, of relationships, that is James, his brother, his parents, and all of his, his cousins, the different people that belong to the places that he lived. Um, and also um, with Mwidamu, because she had such a vast network as a leader, um, I would find documents often because I was trying to see what was there in the documentary record still about her and about her role as a leader? Um, because she's very well known um, within the contemporary Wampanoag community and within Native communities in New England. But she's not so well known um, to many historians and to people who um, want to know more about colonial New England history. Why and how did your own father and maternal grandmother shape the contours of this process, especially for Wiedemu, recognized as our beloved cousin by the Wakbanag Sachem? So that's a great question. Um, so for me, um, kind of my earliest research really arose from um, questions about my own family's history um, and our relationship um, to other Abenaki um, community members um, up in northern Vermont. And it kind of expanded out from there to the point where I really wanted to know so much more about the histories of some of the people who um, came north from the south um, when this violence broke out, and also to learn more about the histories of the, the communities that survived um, here in southern New England. And I think you know, what I drew from my father, as well as other leaders um, in the Abenaki community, was to pay really close attention to the land and, and what it has to teach us. Um, and, and this includes some really kind of material, finite stuff about subsistence, right? So my dad was a really good fisherman, and a lot of what I would learn from him came from being out in the woods with him and fishing or camping or, or hiking. And um, if, if I spent enough time with him out there... Um, 
I would learn how to read the land. I would learn how to read the land so that I could catch a fish, but I also would learn how to read land so I could understand things about the history that you may not find in the historical record or in, in books. And at the same time, I love diving into books and documents and maps. Um, but there's a way that you can read both of those simultaneously so that reading the land teaches you more about what's in the documents um, because so many documents have to do with the land and have to do with people's subsistence and, and why they're, they're fighting so hard to defend their lands is because of the needs of subsistence and the need to take care of their own kin. Um, so I really brought a lot of that with me to this project and a lot of my questions brought me out onto the land and not just by myself, but with other, other people. Um, and sometimes that was my own friends and family. And sometimes that was tribal historians from the communities that I was writing about. Um, and it meant sometimes hiking around those areas, driving around those areas, um, sometimes getting your feet really wet in the marshes. Um, but it also sometimes meant paddling the riverways to try to understand some of the travels that people took and why they took those travels. Um, but you also asked about um, my maternal grandmother, um, and that turned out to be a really important motivation, too, that I didn't fully understand until I was deep into writing about this war um, because I hadn't necessarily meant to write about war. I started really looking at um, James Printer and his networks first, which started at the Harvard Indian College so long before the war began. Um, but his story really led me into the war. And so my maternal grandmother, my babcha, um, my mother's mother, uh, she survived um, being basically removed from her own home in Poland at the beginning of World War II um, with her family um, and being uh, taken to a series of Nazi labor camps um, that were designed for Polish laborers. Um, and they were very brutal conditions. Um, and she was separated from her parents, from her brothers and sisters, and from her husband, my grandfather. Um, and she was trying to help three of her children survive. And throughout the war, she actually had more children. So their family grew during the war once my grandparents um, were together in a, in a camp. Um, so my mother was born in Germany in one of those labor camps. Um, and I feel like this is a kind of long way about the story, but it's also a very shortened version of my grandmother's stories. Um, but really part of what I learned from her was that for most people in the world, when war arrives, it is an unwelcome guest. It is a force that you have no control over and that you're not really focused necessarily on what's right and what's wrong and which side you should pick, et cetera, but on how you're going to enable your children and your relatives to survive. And that was something that I saw over and over and over again in these documents, no matter what side people were on, no matter where they were in the spectrum of war, they were trying to protect their families, um, their, their large extended families, not just, you know, their immediate families. And, and that just struck me as so important a story to tell about this war. You contend that uh, Algonquin language pronouns in these new documents, read in the context of native, native kinship and geography, evoke responsibilities and shared histories that bind people to each other and the land, but that it was not only changes in the land that threatened the capacity of indigenous women to care for their communities, but more subtle changes in governance. How and why did Puritan men 
as well as Christian Wampanoag interpreters such as the orphan John Sassamon, manipulate kinship bonds with land and indigenous governance in order to enforce legal bonds of deed and debt. Conversely, why and how did Tsongsqua, uh, like uh, Widamu, and Algonquin counselors strategically adapt oral testimony to reverse this deed game? This is such a great question. I feel like you've perfectly captured a couple of the central questions that drove me to research and write for, for years. Right? Um, so in some ways, it will be hard to answer it um, in a short way because they're such um, big, huge questions. Um, but I think probably the best way to start is with the oldest deed um, that uh, that I've seen. Um, that Weedamu appears. And because it relates to the other questions that you've been asking and the discussion we've been having as well. And this was a deed um, from that had several different leaders represented in it, including Usumiquin or Massasoit, um, the, who even the Plymouth um, governors recognized as the great sachem of the Wampanoags. Um, but Primarily for him in this deed, you can see that he's recognizing Widamu as our beloved cousin, right? Our kinswoman, as well as a Songsqua, a, a, a female leader in her own right, who's inherited jurisdiction over this whole territory of Pacasset. Um, and what's important is that it's clear for them that. These relationships, too, just like we were talking about the, the research project being rhizomatic, that these relationships were rhizomatic, that it wasn't about who was the single leader who was greatest over the land or or who were the great leaders that were recognized by others, but rather the network of kinship that held them together and that made them responsible for the communities, both the individual communities that they were responsible to, but also the larger communities as a whole and the relationships between them. Um, and, and I think that is often the context Context that doesn't necessarily show up in later deeds, um, because I think those networks of kinship are really the foundation of Native communities in the Northeast and maybe of Native communities all across the continent. Um, and so I think to some extent, um, leaders like the, the Plymouth colonists recognized those kinship networks, but on the other hand, they also couldn't fully understand them or how rhizomatic even the power of leadership was. Um, so, you know, in one particular case, for example, they really sought to manipulate those bonds in order to create um, deeds that would enable them to um, access Wiedemus territory. There in 1657, there's a document that shows um, several um, Plymouth leaders of the second generation um, getting Wamsutta, who was Wiedemus' husband and Usumiquin's son, um, to sign off on a bond um, because of a debt that he owed to a tavern keeper. Um, and this bond included parts of Wiedemu's land. And, and he even said, it's even recorded in the deed that he said that he could not, you know, acquiesce to sell as much as they wanted. Um, and so then this creates a whole other series of deeds in the Plymouth records um, as the Plymouth men attempted to try to get Wiedemu's consent um, on that same deed, um, using this bond against uh, Wamsutta, her husband, as leverage. And there were other Native leaders who were in prison at that time um, for um, the exact um, same scenarios where one of their kinspeople had accumulated a debt um, and that they were being held accountable um, for um, 
basically getting rid of that debt, but only through um, their acquiescence to sell large tracts of vital land to the colonists. So that's an example of how the Plymouth colonists or other colonists would kind of manipulate that system of kinship. But what's really interesting to me and, and is something that I came to understand as I looked at the series of deeds in which Wiedemu was involved, as well as other leaders, the deeds that many leaders were involved, is that many um, Native leaders, including Wiedemu, learned how to strategically adapt um, to those kinds of um, what Francis Jennings would have called deed games, right, that the Plymouth colonists were engaged in. Um, and so there's a really interesting document, for instance, from 1668 that is not a written, it's not just a written document, it's a written document of oral testimony of um, two settlers who are testing to an oral agreement that Wiedemu made with um, two other male settlers that shows that she actually created a false deed for some of her land in order to protect it from other um, colonists who might encroach upon it. And to make that long story short, that it, there was actually a scenario where colonists were testifying against other colonists to show that that land still remained Wiedemu and that she had an oral agreement that was supposed to protect it. Um, and that was really interesting because it also so showed in that document that she was using corn and wampum to seal that agreement. And in this instance, they were making the case that that corn and wampum sealed their words more than the false written deed. Um, so it's clear that this wasn't just simply, you know, Native people being overrun by the deeds that that um, colonists created, but learning how to adapt to that. And oftentimes, there's many times when people fail where, where they cannot um, overcome the power of these deeds. But there are also these instances where Native people are able to adapt to the deed game in, in order to protect their lands. How and why did uh, Caleb... Uh Chisateamuk, come to enroll at the 17th century Harvard Indian College. This is another part of your book, uh, where James, James Printer published tracts on the first floor. And then can you compare and contrast uh, Caleb's and uh, James's, another James's, Kwanana uh, poet's conversionary po politics with those of female converts in your book? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, this is um, really the origin story for the book. Um, there were an amazing group of people um, when I arrived at Harvard College to teach. Um, and in 2005, um, they organized a large all-day conference that was focused on recovering the history and legacy of the Harvard Indian College. A lot of people don't know that Harvard was established as a college for both Indian and English youth. And in fact, that's still part of the charter that governs the university today. Um, and Many of the Native people who were at Harvard and people who are from the, descend, the, the descendant communities of the students who attended Harvard and also the preparatory schools of Harvard College, um, they were really coming together in order to um, create this phenomenal exchange about the history and legacy of the Indian College and what it meant. Um, for Native communities and for the university today and for the Native people who were within the university. Um, and also to try to get the university to really um, engage with this history 
and its legacy. Um, so I was lucky enough to come at that time when these conversations were already in the works. And I remember at that symposium, I was asked to talk about um, James Printer. And it was really having the opportunity to fully delve into his story initially um, that really made me want to understand more about his story. Um, and so there's a lot in this book on James and his relations, but um, the story of the Harvard Indian College also highlights the many Native students who attended um, colonial schools during this period, um, both those schools that were in places like Cambridge and Boston, but also uh, in their own communities. There were many teachers, um, including Native teachers, who were teaching people to read and write. So somebody like Caleb Tishateyamak, um, he went, like James Printer, to the preparatory schools as a young man. Um, and then he was one of the very few students who actually went on to attend um, Harvard College. And although the college and the missionaries who were involved um, with this project, their goal really was um, to teach students um, to, to read and write in multiple languages, in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, English, as well as their own languages, um, so that then they would be educated in a colonial fashion to then carry that education um, to their communities, right? So it was a project of missionization. It was a project of transformation. It was a project of colonization. Um, but for the Native communities and the Native leaders who sent their sons to these schools, it was really about exchange, about learning um, another culture so that there could be better diplomacy between um, the host communities um, like the Wampanoags and Nipmucks um, and the newcomers um, like the English at Massachusetts and, and Plymouth. So they had very different purposes um, so that when these sons came home, um, they would often become teachers in the communities, but they also often would become leaders who would then um, be in a position to advocate and, and be diplomats um, for their communities, to represent their communities. Um, there were also, though, um, young people, many of them orphans of the epidemics, who were taken in and educated um, and then became servants um, to the colonists. And I think um, um, James Poet and his brother Thomas are really good examples um, because they became scouts um, at the beginning of the war. So they were with the Cambridge and the Massachusetts forces from the beginning of the war, helping them to track Philip. But they also became advocates for their kin um, throughout the war, but especially um, as the southern front of the war came to an end, they were pretty strong advocates for um, trying to protect um, their own canon for people who they knew had not participated in the war that they wanted to ensure would be protected. And sometimes um, they succeeded in that, and sometimes they failed terribly and had to face the death of their relations. Um, but the, the people who were educated in these places often had very different stories. And so um, part of what I try to do in the book with James Printer and his brothers, as well as um, some of the other um, people who came out of what they call praying towns or mission communities is show the very different routes um, that their lives ended up taking during the war. On that note, we're going to sort of dive here a little bit into the beginnings of the war. You argue that in 1674, John Sassamon arranged deeds through one of those orphans, John Sassamon arranged deeds 
through which two large tracts of land, nearly 100 acres, were granted by Tuspaquin to himself and his daughter at Asawamoset Neck. How and why did John Sassamon's death on the pond, in addition to a trial bond for a counselor named Tobias, ignite conflict? On related, so how did that ignite conflict? And then related, how and why did Quaker merchant uh, John Easton's 1675 letter and his relation reveal, as you argue, that both Weedamu and Philip Medicom or Medicomet gave the Plymouth men through Easton the opportunity to address their difference or differences in a fair form. So it's kind of a two part two part question. Yeah, and I'll try my best to answer it. Um, and I think this is a great connection because Sassaman, John Sassaman was actually the first um, documented uh, Native student to attend Harvard, although it was before the Indian College was established and he didn't graduate, but he proved very useful um, to the colonists. And I think it's a great example because um, because John Sassaman um, did not have as strong of kinship connections because so many of his relatives had died. He basically was raised in a colonial environment and it was an awkward situation because he was raised to be part of the colonial system, but he also couldn't be a full-fledged member of the colonial system because he was an Indian. Um, and we see this happen even decades and hundreds of years later with um, some Native men who are basically spend their entire childhoods in colonial schools um, and then are often expected to be loyal to um, not just their teachers, but to the men who are uh, the leaders of the colonies. Um, so in Sassaman's case, his death is actually often cited as a major cause of the war. Um, and there's still speculation among historians over what exactly happened to John Sassman, right? A lot of questions that historians ask around, was he murdered? Did he die accidentally? Um, who killed him if he was murdered? Um, is there any substance at all to the colonial suggestion that, or really the colonial insistence um, that he was murdered by some of Philip's counselors um, at Philip's bequest? Um, is there any truth to that, right? Or was that just a pretext for um, something else? And so this is a question that I knew that I, I'd have to dive into to some extent, but what I found that was most interesting is that, um, like a lot of the other cases that I looked at, this case seemed to revolve around land and around a colonial desire for land that Native leaders were not giving up. Um, and John Sassaman, the very place where he died, was then um, very much desired by Plymouth colonists. And in fact, when he died, they were getting ready to claim that land through a deed. Um, and he actually reserved a a tract of land to himself and his daughter, as, as you mentioned in your question. Um, but what happens after he dies is that the Plymouth men then come for several of, of Philip's relatives, men who are identified as his counselors. So one of them is a man named Tobias, and they also take Tobias, his son. Um, and Tobias and his son and another kinsman are accused of murdering John Sassaman at this at the pond. Um, and there's very little evidence against them. 
but they are taken to prison and eventually they're put on trial. Um, but before the trial, they, there's a bond that appears right in the records for Tobias. And this is very unusual because um, murder as a capital crime, um, most people who were accused of this crime were not allowed bond, but Tobias was allowed bond. Um, but I think for a very particular reason, and that is the conditions of his bond were that he and the leader Tispaquin, who was the, um, the leader whose lands they wanted, had to sign a deed, not just for attractive land, but for all of the land and the masket, for all of the land in that territory or homeland. Um, so that would actually then mean the essential displacement of many of the families who were dependent on that place or containment within a, a, a tract that would be defined by the Plymouth colonists, right, where they would allow the people to continue living as they built up the colonial town of Middleborough. Um, and this context to me seemed so vital um, because this is essentially why Tobias is taken and why he dies um, for this tract of land, right? So this isn't just about the death of this one um, native man, John Sassaman, but about this larger quest, um, this colonial quest for claiming indigenous land. Um, and that is really, for me, what the foundation of the war is. Um, and in fact, um, this is what John Easton the Quaker leader in Rhode Island um, really conveys in his relation of the war, which he writes about halfway through. Um, and he actually um, talks about having a very serious diplomatic conversation with Philip and his counselors just before the war, um, where Philip and his counselors lay out a series of complaints um, that really, for me, kind of give testimony to Wampanoag reasons, um, motivations um, that led to this conflict. And they, they mostly revolve around land and jurisdiction, right? Um, the, the, the claiming of land through these, often through these deeds, um, and the, the dire circumstances in which they were in, in terms of the, the little land that was left that was protected that, to sustain their people. Um, Philip says to John Easton, as John Easton records it, we, you know, we have, we do not have hopes that there will be any more land left, right? Um, and they were very concerned with the way that the Plymouth colonists and New England colonists in general were manipulating um, particular people to sign deeds for land that they didn't have the authority to grant. And that's certainly the case with John Sassaman. He's a witness on many, many of the deeds that are later contested. Um, so this is really a dire situation that we're in before the war. And really, John Easton is one of the few colonial leaders who really stands up and recognizes the material conditions of this war, right? Not as a war that's against, that's savagery against civilization, but rather is about the material conditions um, that many Native people in Southern New England are facing at this time, um, as well as the incredible desire for land um, from the Plymouth colonists and from other colonists who really want to take the land wholesale. Um, so this is one of the things that comes out in Easton's relation. And I think really importantly, one of the, the documents that I found um, by tracing Wiedemu is a document um, that shows um, that Wiedemu on the eve of war went to John Easton as well um, before he even met with Philip 
and had him write a letter directly to the Plymouth governor, Josiah Winslow, who she knew well. He had been involved um, in the bond with her husband, Juan Sutta. And in this letter that Eden Easton writes for Widemu, um, she makes it clear that she wants to create a deed that preserves the bounds of her land and her territory um, for her people. And also that, that she will determine who among the colonists can live within her homeland. And she also makes clear that this is coming both out of fear of oppression, she says, from the colonists. She has new uh, documentation, she says, um, that makes her fear that her land will be even more under threat, um, but also a desire for diplomacy. She is still trying to pursue diplomacy on the eve of war um, to create the circumstances where um, it, where her people and the colonists can live in contiguous territories and find a way to do that peacefully. And John Easton himself says that he's willing to serve as her attorney um, to back her up and that many of the other Englishmen who live around her recognize the queen's right, as he calls it. So it's a really important document that shows her leadership on, on the eve of war. Crucial part of the book. Um, can you, uh, can you moving on into the war, I mean, there's your, your book, charts numerous stages and events within the war but can you explain how and this is uh, sort of something i wanted to get into and i think is also crucial um can you explain how your supplemental website to the book there is a supplemental website ourbelovedkin.com um allows readers to chart perspectives on the chaos of war um and as an example, um, the case study, we can focus on uh, Widemu and Quinnipin's journey through uh, the Connecticut River Valley or Quinnet uh, Tech and uh, Sukwaki. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so yeah, the the website is uh, is a project that really developed alongside the book um, as I was pretty deep into it, and I think it's really important for me to mention too that this was a really a collaborative process. Um, involving some of the folks that I mentioned earlier, um, students that I had, um, like Lauren Chiscula, who I mentioned, Cassandra Hergill, um, and um, our GIS specialist, Andy Anderson, who co-taught a class with me, um, as well as folks from Five College um, Digital Humanities who worked with us to create the website. And at first, this website was just a place in my own mind to hold the maps for the book. Um, because I learned a lot by creating um, full color maps um, along with my collaborators um, in order to help me chart um, the stories that I was working on recovering. Um, I needed to put my own mind into the territories and we just don't have the maps available oftentimes to do that. Um, But then really um, once I had a group of students involved um, through a class, Um, the website got a lot bigger because there were stories about the end of the war that were really pressing um, that um, I really wanted to look at more closely and they wanted to look at more closely. So in a lot of ways, the website expanded from there. And so um, what, what we ended up creating was a website that is both a companion to the book and a digital space that allows you to navigate beyond the book into alternate paths. Um, And in many ways it's, 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 trying to help put you in the places um, that are in the book. Um, And I think an important feature of that is that 
most of the images that you see of the in the book of the places are from now, right? They're meant to put you in the contemporary place. And there are some places that might look really similar to how they looked um, during um, the colonial period. There are other places that are drastically transformed. There are other places that have been transformed or in the midst of restoration. Um, But we really want to not just evoke an imaginary historical landscape, but also to think about the continuance of these places now and what we can learn from them. So one of the things that we did with the website, but we also did on the ground, walking through places, paddling through places, um, was to track the removes of Mary Rowlandson, um, who wrote really the first captivity narrative, first published captivity narrative in New England and probably in colonial America. Um, And this is a very famous uh, book that's often taught in schools and colleges, um, but it's often taught from the Puritan perspective, right? Um, And part of what I wanted to do um, with Mary Rallinson was kind of flip the script on her narrative and think more about the native people she traveled with and the native places through which she traveled. Um, And this was especially important because she was the captive of Quinnipin and Weedemu. She was gifted to them after um, she was taken as a captive. And she traveled with Weedemu nearly the entire time that she was in captivity. Um, so I was really interested not just in tracking Mary Rowlandson, but in tracking Weedemu and, and trying to understand um, where she was heading towards and um, what were the motivations of her and other leaders and other community members as they traveled north. Um, so in the, on the website, you can go to a page called the captive's lament and you can follow along, um, these different removes as Mary Rowlandson calls them, um, to the different locations where they traveled. Um, and there's two ways to do that. You can go through, um, the paths that we have here that bring you from remove to remove from place to place, or you can also click on an interactive story map that will give you excerpts from Mary Rowlandson's narrative alongside a map of her journey um, and pictures of these places. And that was designed, that story map was conceptualized and designed by, by two of my students who I mentioned, Cassandra and Lauren, and it really was an innovative project that they came up with. Um, and it's an amazing teaching tool too, um, because you can see see where you are, where your town is, if you happen to live in New England, in relationship to Mary Rowlandson's narrative. Um, But let me take you in a little bit to the Connecticut River Valley, which is... um, becomes the destination, really, for Weedemu and Quinnipan um, during the uh, late winter and early spring of 1676. Um, And this piece was very important to me because... As Quinnipin and Weedemu are moving into the Quinnataqua um, Valley, the Connecticut River Valley, um, they start to move into um, Abenaki territory. And on many maps, it would appear as if when they um, got into Abenaki territory that they were going off the map. Right. Um, Because that was a space that was unmapped by English colonists at the time. Um, But it was very well known and very well mapped by um, Abenaki people and by um, related native nations in the area. So when Quinnipin and Weedemu headed um, for 
um, Sukwakik territory, they knew where they were going. They knew the places that they would find there. They knew the peoples that they would find there. And indeed, um, it, it seems that there were thousands of people that ended up in Sukwakik territory um, during this time. And they built many different um, camps in the locations of Sukwakik villages um, and were able to nourish and protect themselves and their captives um, throughout the winter and early spring. So it's really pretty remarkable um, to see um, the ways in which they were able to take care of each other during this time. Um, and to my mind, one of the reasons why they were going towards this territory is because of the planting grounds in this area. Um, as, as some people know, um, Native women um, were the ones who cared for and tended and planted um, the, the, the fields, the mounds of corn, beans, squash, sunflowers, Jerusalem artichoke, all kinds of good foods that they planted together. And the Connecticut River Valley in particular is one of the most fertile river valleys in the world. Um, even as it goes north, it has many uh, what we call in the Abenaki language, Wolhanak, which are valleys. Um, they're bowls of sustenance, right? That not only for planting, but hunting, fishing, plant gathering. Um, so these are kind of what my um, my friend Judy Dow, who's an Abenaki artist and educator, calls uh, Indian grocery stores, right? So um, really, when they were going up to the north, they were going to the Indian grocery store, right? And they were going into communities where they knew that they would be they would be welcomed. Um, and so, you know, this is getting, they're getting ready for spring, they're getting ready to plant. And it is clear from the documents and from their later actions that the people who are coming from the South would much rather return to their own home places to plant, that's for sure. But they also knew that in going North, if they needed to, they could find sustenance here. They could find a place to stay, they could find shelter, they could find sustenance, um, they could find um, a temporary home among their relations in a place that had the potential to feed all of them. Um, and as Mary Rowlandson is moving through those territories, she may not recognize that, but that's something that is very clear from what we know of the history and what we know of that land there. And um, even today, um, you can see it in the land. You can see the bowls of food in the land. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I want people to be able to use the website as well, to be able to maybe see some of the things that I see and that many of the people who go with me see um, when we walk or paddle those lands today. So, and actually on that note, uh, can you uh, compare and contrast uh, Mary Rowlandson's during her captivity? You mentioned that she approaches her captivity, uh, Rowlandson does, with a uh, strategy of separation. Um, and then uh, the same section of the book, there's also a segment on going back to James Printer during the war. He uh, uses what you describe as psychological warfare, or maybe paralleling that, Um Evidenced uh, by in the spring 1676, uh, uh, Ohikagan posted a writing posted at the foot of uh, a Medfield bridge. And I'm going to for the printer seg uh, component of that question, I'll read the uh, what the the posting <laughs> says. It says, and bear with me, uh, thou English man hath provoked us to anger and wrath, and we care not though we have war with thee this twenty one years, for there are many of us, three hundred of which hath fought with thee at this time. We have nothing but our lives to lose, but th thou hast many fair houses, cattle, and much good things. 
So again, uh, Rollinson's strategy of separation, and then uh, can you describe and then maybe compare and contrast that with James Printer's approach? Uh, uh, this this kind of this. Uh, posting at the foot of Medfield Bridge. Yeah, it's a powerful note, isn't it? It's 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 quite amazing to hear you read it out loud and, and obviously it's uh it's a document that I've thought a lot about and other people have thought a lot about too. Um and it's one of those rare um native authored um documents that survive and that tell us something about what a man like James Printer might have been thinking at the time and what he wanted to communicate. And I think it's important to say that James Printer had never intended to, to um, be involved in the resistance. Well, that I know of, right? I mean, I can't really know his intents, but clearly um, at the beginning of the war, he was seeking um, to stay out of it really. Um, and even participated in, early efforts to protect um, not only his own community, but the English communities around him. Um, And what he suffered during the war um, is almost unthinkable. He was taken captive and accused of murder very early on in the war. um, And it turned out, you know, after a month in prison um, and a, a trial that uh, he was not only innocent, but he, along with his other kinsmen who were accused, were in church the entire day where this murder was supposed to take place. Um, and then he ends up in the same place as Wiedemu and Mary Rowlandson because his own Nipmuc relations take him and many of his relatives from their own town of Hassanamiset, um, really for their own protection, um, when the English are starting to round up. Christian Indians to intern them in Boston Harbor on Deer Island. Um, and James Printer, by the time this note is written, has has seen the worst of his English neighbors. Um, and the Cambridge forces, in fact, were at Medfield um, during this time. So one way of understanding this note is that he's using very formal language, the language of his own educational training, um, to address those very men, those very Englishmen who he knew in Cambridge and whose whose house and cattle and good things he had witnessed um, when he lived there. Um, it's also possible, though, that he's he's addressing Englishmen more generally and, in fact, pointing to um, their greed for for fine things, for fair houses, and for cattle um, as a cause of the war, right? Um, There were many people, including Mary Rowlandson um, and her editor, Increase Mather, who wanted to portray the war, particularly to the authorities back in England, as a just war of civilization against savagery. And I think one of the things that James Printer's note shows is the very more material reasons um, that were the foundation of the war. Um, But it also kind of shows a kind of us and them here. Um, And I think that relates to the strategies of separation. Whereas at the beginning of the war, um, many of the people from the mission communities like James Printer were really still seeing um, the English colonists as part of an us, right? Their neighbors with whom they had um, very, Um, specific agreements and alliances of mutual protection um, to by very midway through the war, um, they are enemies. um, And 
James Printer's note says we did not become enemies because we were different. We became enemies um, because you have provoked us, right? Um, and I think that's a really important statement, given what James went through during the war, and in fact how little protection was provided to his people by those colonists who had promised them to protect them. Um, it's also possible that this note really shows James's role as a scribe. He served at different times as a scribe for the Nipmuc leaders. So it's also very possible that this was a collective statement, not just James's individual one, but a collective statement that James was asked to compose. And um, that is certainly possible. Um, and I think one of the ways that I talk about this and other scholars talk about it too, in terms of psychological warfare, um, is in really raising doubt in the English leaders and soldiers um, about their own self-righteousness, um, really raising doubt about their rightness in carrying out this war and asking them to question whether it is greed, which is a sin, um, as James Printer well would have known because of his scholarly and Christian training, whether that sin of greed was really the motivation underlying this violence. And that's something that... Um, I think Mary Rowlandson doesn't want to grapple with. Uh, Mary Rowlandson is in many ways set on staying within the framework of believing that this is a just war, or at least portraying in her writing that this is a just war of civilization against savagery. And that's really illustrated when um, the warriors come back from Medfield after having left this note. Um, she describes um, their... They're singing as they return as um, I'm trying to make sure I have the right quote here um, as roaring and hooping over Englishmen's scalps. Right. Um, and so she doesn't recognize that Nipmuc um, protectors and leaders have gone out to reclaim a territory um, that really is part of their homeland, um, nor does she see this as defensive, but rather it's about savages celebrating the taking of English flesh from civilized Christians, right? So as if their motivation comes more from, from um, their civil, uncivilized impulses um, rather than from um, rational, legitimate impulses. Um, and that's a trope that carries throughout her narrative. But for me, it's when that narrative falters, when there are gaps in that narrative that are most interesting, right? So in the same passage, she recognizes that they meet in a council house and she later recognizes that that's akin to an English court, right? It's this huge uh, meeting house where everybody has a voice, where even she's allowed to speak. Um, she also recognizes um, um, this as home. Right. So she has a sense that this is not just home for the people who are there, but this has become her home as well. And there are many moments where the kind of facade of savagery versus civilization breaks down and you see her learning. Um, for example, um, she has one of the most um, generous portrayals of Metacom or Philip of any of the Puritan narratives. And she really shows him being generous to her and in treating her 
almost like an equal um, and encouraging her to participate in exchange. Um, and likewise, she portrays Quinnipin in the same way. It's just this all breaks down, though, when she portrays Widemu, because Widemu as a woman leader really was something that she had to not associate with. So she is constantly kind of portraying herself as at odds um, with Widemu. And so that's one of those strategies of separation and that she really, in writing this narrative, has to disassociate herself from a woman like Widemu um, and kind of try to put Widemu in her place as an Indian woman who would be below, far below English men on the kind of hierarchical scale that Puritan men used, but also to disassociate herself and separate herself from a woman like Widemu so that people did not think either that she kind of went Indian, um, went savage, um, became too savage during her captivity, or that she stepped out of her position as a woman and as a Puritan woman, um, that she maintained her position below um, the men around her. So for our uh, our final question, um, and really briefly, I just wanted you to elaborate on the contention at the end of the war that the military of the United Col- Colonies were enabled by skilled native scouts, you mentioned this earlier, um, who knew the, knew the territory in a drought that no one could predict, which resulted in... Uh, numerous deaths from uh, Kinnipin and Widamu to uh, Medicom. Um, and then as well as this, I, you've already mentioned this, this coming in of James Printer. And also within that, I, I also was particularly interested in uh, uh, the Wapinaki leadership and how they secured the release of uh, captives that were supposed to be headed to the Azores during uh, the summer, summer 1677 councils at Pemaquid, which concluded not, o- not only the northern theater of the war, but uh, the war itself, I guess. I don't know if it's contained that way. Um, so A, A, this, you know, these native scouts in the drought, and then B, um, specifically the uh, Wapanaki uh, sort of negotiations to release captives. Yeah. So this really arises, I think, from the last two chapters of the book. And um, one of the phrases I use um, for one of those chapters is unbinding the ends of war, because for me, really, the 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 end of the book isn't really wrapping up the war, but rather really opening more of these rhizomatic pathways um, for raising questions about the ends of war. Um, And this arose out of the own very persistent questions that came up out of um, my own research, but also out of these conversations with, um, with my students um, and also conversations with other um, Native people in New England about what happened, right? Um, and sometimes um, I think people try to tie up the ends of war too cleanly, right? And I think for me, the end of King Philip's War really raises more questions than anything else. Um, so even the things that I talk about in these last two chapters are really questions um, that I think there needs to be even more conversation and research about. So the role of scouts at the end of the war is really important. And some of those scouts, um, like James Kwanonopoit and his brother Thomas, they had served from the beginning of the war. Um, and many, but many of the scouts um, were taken from Deer Island. Um, so they had been interned in Deer, on Deer Island and barely survived the winter. There were like starvation and, um, and 
and uh, there were conditions of starvation, hypothermia, right? Um, the people that survived were not in good shape. And it was not just men, but entire families. And so um, a whole group of Native men were released from Deer Island and their families were released under the uh, quote unquote protection of colonists in Boston. They were not allowed to leave. Um, and they then had to serve as scouts. Um, so, you know, there were some who had gone willingly from the beginning, but there are others who were really coerced or forced um, into serving as scouts. Um, and this put them in a very difficult situation, for sure. Um, but as I said before, although these men served as scouts and often helped colonial forces or were even sometimes on the front lines, really uh, bringing other native people in um, to the colonial forces. Um, they also used their position as scouts to strategically advocate um, for the protection of some of the people, even some of those who they took in. And they advocated for people to come in on their own um, so that they wouldn't have to go out and take them. But certainly um, the ability of the United Colonies to capture and kill uh, Native people in the summer of 1676 was facilitated by using um, the knowledge and the skills of men who knew that territory really well. Um, and in the case of many of the scouts who were forced to kind of turn, um, their own kin were held hostage, right? Um, so Benjamin Church famously bragged about how he would um, – threatened to kill someone's family member if they didn't then bring other people in or serve as a scout to bring other people in. Um, so this was part of the really, really difficult and challenging and really heartbreaking history of this war, particularly in that summer. At the same time, one of the things that was really interesting to think about, about how it is that the colonial forces were able to suddenly access native places that had been inaccessible before was realizing that there was a drought during that summer. And it wasn't a debilitating drought where, you know, you couldn't grow anything at all, where nothing would grow. Um, but it was intense enough that it dried up a lot of the swamps that had previously protected people that had previously made um, important native refuges unnavigable by Englishmen. Um, and the combination of the scouts with the drought, um, as well as several other factors, including a peace process that was ongoing, um, seemed to have contributed to the United Colonies' ability to bring in large numbers of Native people, um, some of whom who had participated in the war, who had fought against the English, some of whom who had not. Um, and many of those people were killed. Many were sent into slavery. Um, and there were also people who survived. Um, and that's a really important, important part of this, the ends of this war as well, is that there were people who survived in enclaves in Southern New England, um, who sometimes were even taken in people who were taken in by some of the communities that were protected because of their Christian status. Um, but there were also people who were able to get North. Um, just like when Weedamu and Quinnipan were re leading people up into the Connecticut River Valley, some of those people stayed. Um, and some of those people also um, traveled up through um, coastal networks and were able to get into Panacook and other Wabanaki territories to the North. And so, Really, the war continues on for another couple of years up north. Um, and that's a context of the war that isn't often um, 
told in stories of King Philip's War. A lot more people are starting to pay attention to it. And certainly people who study Wabanaki history know it fairly well. Um, but I think that context is important because it also is a story of survival. Um, and so when that war continues in the North, it's not just Wabanaki people fighting it, but it's also the people, the relatives who have come up from the South. And I think even the wars that continue on nearly for another 100 years involve not just Wabanaki people, but the people who join those communities, right? And so it becomes a much bigger and stronger kinship network in the North than it may have been previously. Um, and I think the diplomacy that comes out of the North is as important as the resistance. Um, that's also a diplomacy that continues on at least for another 100 years, if not more. Um, and that diplomacy is really exemplified by the, the Treaty of Pumaquid of 1677. Um, and that treaty essentially ends the war, but it also really conveys the incredible amount of diplomacy that it took um, to bring this conflict to an end. Um, and it involved um, leaders on the Kennebec River doing direct negotiations with colonial leaders from New York who had not been involved in the war um, to create a space for mediation. Um, and it had eventually involved um, a huge, large number of Wabanaki leaders who were willing to come to the table, as well as Massachusetts leaders who up to this point had still been pursuing the war. Um, so it took a lot of diplomatic effort to bring this to fruition. And one of the most remarkable things to come out of the treaty is the return of captives, Wabanaki captives, who were taken from all the way up the coast at Machias, um, which is far beyond the northern front of the war, um, people who were not involved in the war at all. Um, these captives were taken from basically down East Maine um, all the way to the Fayal Islands, to the Azores, um, which are um, off the coast of Spain, right? It was a major slave trading um, site um, during this period. Um, and as part of the diplomacy that created the Pamaquid Treaty, some of these captives were returned. So Massachusetts basically was compelled to send a ship out to the Fayal Islands in order to retrieve some of those captives. Um, and this is a remarkable moment that appears in the documents um, because at first when the ship arrives that's holding these captives, when that ship arrives at Pemaquid, um, the Massachusetts representatives insist that the people cannot be released until the Wabanaki people return the English ships that they have taken. So, so um, Wabanaki men have already started taking English ships, right, and, and operating them themselves. Um, and this was not originally one of the conditions of the treaty. So the New York counselors are actually very upset about this because they think it threatens um, the entire treaty process, which they feel like they have um, worked hard to achieve. Um, and there's a remarkable moment that's recorded in one of the documents coming out of Maine um, that shows two of the native leaders, one who's a well-known um, spiritual leader, Medel Scarbe from the Kennebec River, and one who was one of the men who came up north from the south, from the Merrimack River, a man known as Simon. Um, and they go to the ship and they demand that they're able to 
carry up some of those people. And there's a remarkable moment when Simon reaches down into the ship's hold and he takes up a boy in his arms, right? Um, and Simon, of course, is also known as the Yankee killer, right? He's supposed to be this, in the English accounts, this just like fierce, relentless warrior. And you can see this incredible moment of kinship here and trying to retrieve um, one of their relations from the ship's hold. And luckily, you know, at the end of the treaty, these captives are released and they're able to return to their homes. Um, but for me, that's really the remarkable moment that also for me um, – is what led to the name of the book, Our Beloved Kin, because that moment shows us um, what the motivation was and also the, the importance of a single child, right? And how much that one child is loved um, and the impacts that this war had on those families. Before signing off, just real quickly, uh, what, what uh, more can we expect from you? Are you working on anything else or what can you disclose at this point of any kind of future project? Oh, well, for right now, I'm going to try to get back into the woods with my daughter. <laughs> That's my biggest motivation right now. <laughs> um, I'm expecting more snow tomorrow. So after that snow comes, we're going to get out there and we're going to have get do some tracking. And, and um, I hope to be able to spend a little bit more time in the present and not in the 17th century. So <laughs> for right now, that's my plan. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, thank you for a pretty lively uh, podcast uh, today. Thank you, Ryan. For everybody at, at the New Books Network, and especially at the Native American Studies and History Channel, I'm Ryan Tripp, uh, signing off for now. We'll see you next time. <laughs>